I'm going to ask Dustin and Kristen and the whole family, the Josie family, grandpas, grandmas, uncles, aunts, come stand with me. And Dustin and Kristen, if you'll come stand with me over here on this side. We're going to dedicate a baby to the Lord. And uh, Grandma Josie. <laughs> Amen. Kristen, what a beautiful grace. Okay, come stand over here, Sister Pat. Okay, is this some of these folks your parents? Your parents, okay. We're so glad to have you here today for this occasion. And I've already given Kristen uh, Grayson's uh, first Bible, a masculine Bible, and uh, uh, his dedication certificate. Dedicating children. Come stand right over here so everybody can see you. And they, But you can stand at a B. There's fine. Um, dedicating of children goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And even Jesus was brought up and dedicated by his parents on the eighth day, which was the ceremonial day to come up and dedicate children. <clears throat> Think about that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They'd already done a lot of traveling. She gives birth eight days later. She makes a trip up to Jerusalem with Joseph, and they dedicate Jesus in the temple. But in the Old Testament, Hannah brought her baby who was named Samuel, and she gave him to the Lord. Dedication just simply means I'm giving this baby to you, Jesus, because you gave this baby to us. Now, I know when Grayson was born, you looked him all over. You kissed him. You smelled him. You looked at his feet and his toenails and his fingernails. Make sure he's perfect. Was he perfect? And that gives you a great feeling, doesn't it? And so you dedicate this perfect child to the Lord. And you give him to Jesus. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. And Dustin and Kristen have decided they wanted to dedicate their baby to Jesus. Can somebody say praise the Lord? And so we want to do that. If you'll hold the microphone. I've had a little bit of experience holding children. <laughs> Father, right now, as I hold Grayson, Andrew, Josie in my arms, I ask you to bless this little boy because he is an entire soul, a complete soul. I ask you, Lord, to protect him from anything and everyone that would try to hurt him or harm him. Protect him from injuries. Cover him with your precious blood. Cover him with your precious love. And I ask you to lay your hand on Dustin and Kristen today, that as they raise this infant, that it, they will just draw closer to you than ever before, realizing what a precious gift of God Grayson is. I ask you to bless her parents and, and relatives. I ask you to bless Dana and Pat here today. Oh, they've got a lot going for them. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, 
I bless this child and give him to Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you, big man. Okay, this is wonderful, and I just want to shake y'all's hands. Thank you for being here today. Y'all got a big dinner planned? No? Well, yeah. You got to eat after something like this, don't you? Okay, y'all may be seated. Okay, I'll take pictures after church with you, too, if you want to. Amen. Isn't this a great day? (laughs) Y'all weren't supposed to be here. It was supposed to be stormy today. I'm glad you came. You know, I learned in Miami. I pastored uh, in Miami at the same church for 31 years. And uh, we were always getting hurricane warnings, storm warnings. After the first five years, I never canceled another service. And... uh, one Sunday, <clears throat> one Sunday, we had half the crowd there, and the hurricane was coming over. And uh, they showed up. And uh, someone said, Brother Stalker, aren't you afraid being in this building? I said, this building has been here since 1965. It's endured at least seven hurricanes. I think it's fairly safe. <laughs> and, uh, the Lord is gracious. In fact, they wanted us to dedicate it as a, as a, a place where you could go and have shelter. This morning, I want to preach a message entitled, God's Purpose. God has a purpose for every person in this building. The scripture teaches us that you are uniquely made. There is no one like you in the whole world. Even identical twins have slightly different DNA. In fact, your, your DNA and my DNA is so, is so different from anyone else's on the face of the earth. It is such an identifier that even though it is different, maybe even slightly, your DNA is such that your lineage can be traced back to its beginnings. You may not know the names, but you will know a lot about that. My niece, she had, took her DNA and, uh, and took it up and had the DNA tested, and it came back that she was, that our family. And uh, so because she had a different mother than I did, all the things I didn't want, I said, that's on your side of the family. <laughs> but uh, I thought our name was mostly German, but it's mostly English. Uh, uh, 75% chance came from uh, English background and uh, several other things. Uh, uh, but I'll tell you what, your DNA is different than anyone else's DNA on the face of the earth. Let me tell you, you may ha- people have done crimes 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, but they kept the DNA and they have found out criminals who did crimes just from their DNA because maybe one in 50 million people is a chance that you did it. That's not much of a doubt, is it? And so, you're uniquely made. Your eyes, did you know your iris is different than anyone else's on the face of the earth? The ridges on your lips are different than anyone else's on the face of the earth. Your, your ears are different. Everything about you is unique. Only God could make us in such a way where we are so unique. 
we also have a unique call of God upon our lives. There is a place in God. There is a call that God has on your life and my life that only I and you can fulfill. God has called you for a purpose. And then there is a unique destiny that you have. A unique destiny. The Bible says when Jesus comes back, he will bring his reward with him. You have a place in the heart of God no one else can fill. You have a place in his kingdom that no one else can fill. It grieves the heart of God when people choose not to be involved in the destiny that God has called them for. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about the purpose that God has for your life. And I want to use as a principal scripture, a passage found in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Four parts of that verse of scripture. I have raised you up. God has raised you up. You're here this morning because of God's providence and God's grace and God's mercy. You're here this morning. You're alive and you're breathing because God has permitted it. God has raised you up. Listen, dear friends, we're just one breath away from dying. We breathe the next breath of air because of God's mercy and God's, God's grace. And then he says, I've raised you up for this very purpose, very purpose, this purpose. I am so glad God has a purpose for my life. And he said, I've raised you up for this purpose that I might show you my power. Did you know God wants to show you his glory and his power? You say, Pastor, how does God want to show you his glory and his power? It's when you trust him with your life and God comes through. Regardless of the trials and sufferings and grief and difficult times, when you trust the Lord, you will sense that God comes through and that he shows himself marvelous in your sight. And he does that so that his name might be glorified in all the earth. There's only one way that God's name will be glorified, and that's when we let Jesus have his perfect will in our lives and we fulfill the purpose God has called us. Now, I'm going to read a story about Jacob. And I call it the story of going to school, God's school. As most of you know, Jacob, his name means deceiver. Sometimes a name of a person takes on a meaning because of their conduct, their actions, and their traits. When you hear the name Attila the Hun, or you hear the name of Mussolini, you think of butchers and men that were crazed. When you hear the name Judas, you think of betrayal. But when you hear the name of Abraham Lincoln, you think of Honest Abe. When you think of Calvin Coolidge, he's known as the quiet president. And so on and so forth. Names have meanings because of traits and because of character. Well, Jacob had terrible character. He was a liar, he was a cheat, and he was a conniver. One day, 
Esau was in the tent of his father. And his dad said, you're a mighty hunter. You're a man's man. Because Esau was reddish and he was hairy all over. He was a stout man. His brother Jacob was an indoor guy. He would rather play Atari than go out and play baseball. He would rather be with his mother than be with his dad. And so naturally, Abraham was drawn to this man. And Esau was a hunter. He said, take your bow and arrows and go get me some venison before I die. And I will give you your birthright. The birthright did not have anything to do with the estate or the wealth of the family. It had to do with the spiritual touch of God upon his life. And so he goes out and he's hunting. And this one day he comes back and he says, I'm dying, I'm dying. Well, his mother knew that he would be hungry when he got back. Rebecca knew that Esau would be hungry. He's always starving when he came back from a hunt. And he comes back and so she has coached. Jacob said, listen, you know that... that uh, that porridge that you make so good and I'll give you my recipe, you cook it together, let's get it up together because when your brother comes back and, uh, and he's about to die, he thinks he's about, have you ever had children, mom, I'm so hungry, I'm about to die. You ever had somebody, our son David, he'd come home and he'd say, mom, I hurt, I am in pain, I am so hungry, mom, my stomach is hurting. I can imagine Esau was kind of like that. So he came back and he says, I'm about to die. Let me have some of that porridge that you got. And Jacob says, I will if you'll give me your birthright. He said, what good is this birthright? And for a bowl of soup, he gave his birthright away. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 5 through 10, now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back. And Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare it for me, some tasty food to eat so that I might give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so that I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Let me just talk about this. This is the second time that Esau goes out to hunt. Rebecca is involved in this. Let me talk a moment about this birthright. Jacob, Esau despised his birthright. He despised the call of God on his life. And it is easy to misunderstand the call of God on a person's life. How good it is, how wonderful it is, how fulfilling it is to fulfill the call of God in your life. And you might say, but I'm not a preacher. You don't have to be a preacher to fulfill the call of God in your life. This morning I have a very wonderful brother here with us. His name is Michael Whipperman. Stand, Michael. Michael is uh, one of our vendors, and uh, I've invited him to church. Uh, would you give him a hand? God bless you. 
He's a brother in Christ. He sells us our light bulbs and electrical stuff. You do not have to be a preacher to fulfill God's call in your life. Michael influences everyone he meets for Jesus. He tells them his story, tells him what Jesus has done for him. Everybody can be a witness of what God can do on the inside of your life. Esau despised the call of God. He saw no future in the call of God on his life. And when a present need, his hunger came about, he traded what he felt was of little worth for a bowl of soup. And Jacob, of course, was right there to take advantage of Esau's apathy toward the call of God. Isn't it amazing? Jacob wanted the call of God in his life. He desired to serve the Lord. He wanted to be a spiritual leader even if he had to take advantage of someone else to get it. Amazing. I want that job. I want that promotion. I don't think I'm going to get it because so-and-so seems to be a pet and favorite. And so behind the scenes, I am going to work until I can sow a seed of discord between the boss and that guy so I can get what I know God wants me to have. You see, you can get the right thing, but you can do it in the wrong way. This begins to reveal an ugly trait and an ugly characteristic in Jacob's personality. And then when later Isaac said, I want you, Esau, to go get me some meat in this passage I read you so I can bless you. He's talking about the wealth of the family, the estate of the family. He knows that Esau has sold his call of God in his life. And the Bible says later he sought it with tears, but he couldn't find it. Don't sell out what you think is of little worth now. Because sometimes it's hard to get it later on. He asked him to go kill a deer and bring it and prepare it and make a meal for dinner. And Rebecca overheard the conversation of Isaac to her son Esau. So she goes and gets Jacob and says, you go and get two lambs and I'll help you make it taste like venison. Now, I don't know how in the world you can do that. And then she takes and she glues on his arm sheep wool so he would feel like Esau and smeared some of the wild stuff on his body so he'd smell like Esau. And the end of the story is that Jacob believed it was Esau when it was actually Jacob and he conferred the entire state estate on him. All of the wealth of the family. Now listen, Isaac was very wealthy. He was the wealthiest man around. In fact, he became so wealthy that when he went down to the Philistines in Gath, they made him leave because they said, you're worth more than the whole nation. In just one year, God gave Isaac a 10,000% increase, a hundredfold increase. That's 10,000% increase. I'd like those returns on my money, wouldn't you? 10,000, we're going to give you, this year we're offering 10,000% interest. Only God could do that. He was the wealthiest man. He was wealthier than a nation. And so he conferred because of conniving and because of deceit. He conferred the call of God and he conferred the wealth of the family upon Jacob instead of Esau. 
Well, the outflow of that was that Esau's telling people, I'm going to kill Jacob when my dad dies. And Rebekah gets word, and so she says to Isaac, Esau's going to kill Jacob. I need to send him far off. So she sends him far off to another nation, to her brother's house, Laban. I call this hard times, God's education 101. Genesis chapter 31, verse 6 and 7, you know that I have worked for your father with all my strength. These are the words of Jacob after he'd worked for Laban for 20 years. Yet your father has cheated me my church and by changing my wages 10 times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. I'm telling you, cheating and conniving must have been a family trait. I mean, Rebecca, she cheats, connives. Jacob catches it. She sends Jacob to her brother Laban. He's a cheat and a conniver. And let me tell you how he did it. He's broken up into three parts. As soon as Jacob gets down there to the neighborhood of his uncle Laban, he goes to the well because he's thirsty from the trip. Who does he meet? He meets a daughter of Laban. Her name is Rachel. Now, the Bible says she was beautiful and well-favored. That means, wow, that's what that means. Whew. Jacob fell in love with her at first sight. On Jacob's deathbed over a hundred years later, Jacob recalls the sorrow of the death of Rachel. So he comes to the camp of Laban and he says, Laban, I will work for you. What can I do in order to have Rachel to be my wife? Do you know, Laban, he's sitting back in his easy chair saying, <laughs> oh dear. Here is a plum ripe for picking. Remember, he's a cheat. He's a conniver. He said, if you'll work for me seven years, I'll give you Rachel to be your wife. He says, done. And the Bible says those seven years seem to fly by. At the end of those seven years, he is knocking on Laban's door. and He says, I want my wife. He says, okay, we'll do it after dark tonight. Now, Laban had thought this out very, very well. He wasn't going to marry her at 10 a.m. in the morning. He's going to marry her to him at 10 o'clock at night. They start the festivities, and then here she comes. She's dressed from the head to foot, and she's got three veils on. He doesn't know who it is, but he doesn't have any, any suspicions. So, he gets married. They go in the tent for their wedding night. They consummate the wedding. The next morning, he gets up when it's daylight, and she doesn't have her veil on anymore. And he looks over and says, you're not Rachel. You're Leah. Leah was not beautiful, but the Bible says she was tender-eyed and of a sweet spirit. He gets up, storms over to Laban's camp, says, what is this that you have done to me? You have given me Leah instead of Rachel. I've worked seven years. He says, oh, it's not right. He's got it down pat. It's not right for us to give the younger away before the older is married. 
but here's what you do. Serve me another seven years for your wages, and I'll give you Rachel to be your wife, and I'll do this for you. If you'll swear under God to do it, you stay with Leah for a week, and next week, I'll give you Rachel in marriage. Who ever heard of a guy getting married to two women in one week? So he serves him 14 years and he's not been paid one thin dime. That's what you call God's education 101 and 201. But it's not done yet. So after the 14 years, Laban comes in, he says, what are you, what wages do you want? You, I've learned that God blesses me because you're here. What wages do you want? And he said, well, I have to think about it. Uh, let me go home and just think about it. So he went back to his house and God spoke to him in a dream. And God taught him selective breeding. So he comes and I'm going to give you the pattern. It might not be exactly what happened, but it's the pattern. He goes back to Laban and he says, you know, I'll take all the sheep that have a black foot on the right foot. They will be mine. Well, Laban sent his sons out there. Count all the sheep that have black feet. There was about 1% had black feet. He said, this this is a dummy. This is too easy. He said, deal. And here's what. Jacob did. He took all of the male sheep that didn't have a black foot and put them by themselves. He took all the sheep that had black feet and put them by themselves with all the female lambs. The percentage went up about 10% immediately of the flock. That's called selective breeding. The gestation period of sheep is 152 days. So that means in those seven years, they had about 15 generations of sheep. And in those 15 generations, Jacob owned about 75% of the wealth of Laban. Every Every seven months, Every five months was a new generation. That's why it was about every seven months. Every because you take seventy-two months divided by ten. That's about seven months. That's where it said. That's why Jacob said he's changed my wages ten times. So he'd send his sons out there. How many? How many sheep have had have, have had have, have had a black foot? Well, it's man. It's increasing his herd. He had. He said, "Well, let's do it this way. Those sheep that have black ears." Well, it didn't matter what it was. God had already showed Joseph, Jacob, how to do selective breeding. You see, you can do what God tells you to do because it does not arrive, nor does it stem from ugliness or bad conduct. These next six years, the first 14 add up to 20. And finally... Jacob was out one day and he heard the sons of Laban talking about Jacob, how he has become extremely wealthy and they don't like it. And so Jacob decides that he probably needs to start heading back to Canaan land. And so he starts on his way, but first he meets with his two wives, Rachel and Leah. And he asks their advice. He tells them the attitude of Laban toward him. 
toward them, towards the 11 sons that he already has and the one daughter, Dinah. You see, he had one more son to be born. Trivia question, what was the last son that was born? Benjamin. Okay. He was born on the way. Who died at that childbirth? Rachel. Rachel died at a very young age. She only had two children. He realizes he needs to take his family home to Canaan land to his father Isaac, but he is fearful of his uncle Laban. He knows his uncle Laban has soldiers in the camp and he recognizes that the Lord has kept Laban from harming him, but still he deals with fear. So Jacob seeks the advice of his wives. And I want you to note this. He has got a sense of growing responsibility that his decisions don't only affect him, but they affect a lot of people around him. There was possibly three or 400 people in Jacob's camp at this time because now he is very, very wealthy. Having God's favor and the blessing of his wives. Listen, I don't care how strong a man a man may be. Before you make big decisions, you probably need to talk to your wife about it. <laughs> if you don't. You come home and tell your wife you bought a brand new Cadillac. And you didn't talk to her about it. Uh, more. Oh, here, here's, here's one. You got three children, but you went out and bought a brand new two-door Cadillac. I had a fellow in my church that drove a Maserati. He paid $250,000 for it. It was a four-door sedan Maserati. I asked him. I said, Abel, whose idea was it to get a four-door Maserati? He said, Rebecca's. That was his wife's name. Rebecca's. I, w I couldn't go out and spend $250,000 for a car and not have her approve it. A wise man, what do you think? After the crash of 208, he came in and said, Brother Stalker, I've got to cut down and tone down. I'm going to get rid of this Maserati. He got rid of the Maserati and he came to church one day. He says, I want to show you my car. I went out there. It was a Mercedes Benz. I said, only you could say you are cutting back and drive a Mercedes Benz up here. It was a four-door. Listen, before you have a big expenditure like that, before you make a life-changing decision, you better include your wife. Can somebody say amen? One of the few times in his life he had wisdom to have God's approval and his wife's approval. The next portion I call hungry for God. Genesis chapter 32, verse 24 and 25. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man, and he limped on it the rest of his life. Jacob is nearing his homeland. He comes to a brook that was the beginning of Canaan land. He hears that his brother Esau is coming to meet him. But what scares him is Esau has an army of 400 armed men with him. So fear really enters into his heart. You see, the devil always has one last trick to cause you and me to fear. Because you see, 
I rarely ever made mistakes, but what I was fearful that I was not going to get my dues. Or I was fearful something bad was going to happen. Fear never generates a right mistake except in rattlesnakes. Get away. Grenades too. A couple other things. But fear for the most part is what causes us to yield to those ugly characteristics and traits in our life in order to protect ourselves, in order to get what we feel is our dues and our justice. He fears and he begins to seek God and God comes down and begins to wrestle with him. Now, I've thought about this long and hard. Why was God wrestling with him? Because Jacob is still struggling with those old ugly traits. God has dealt with him for 20 years about them. He's been to school. He's he's now a senior in school. He's been to 101, 201, 301. Now it's 401. He meets God himself and God is wrestling with him. And the Bible says that Jacob wrestled with him all night long and and, and he would not let him go. And finally, the Lord said, uh, you know, the Lord touched the hip and caused it to be out of joint. You ask yourself, why was Jacob wrestling? Because Jacob was tired of those old traits. Jacob was tired of that old bondage of letting his old character come to the surface. And I assert to you this morning, on the authority of God's word, there is deliverance from our old traits in Jesus' name if we are willing to hunger for God. Jacob was so hungry for God that he said, I will not let you go till you bless me. I will not let you go till you bless me. What is the greatest blessing that we could have? Victory over our fears. Victory over those besetting things that come against us. When the angel let him go, he said, what is your name? And Jacob said, my name is Jacob. He said, no more. I'm giving you a new name. Your name is Israel because you're mighty with God. That's a purpose God has for every one of us. He wants us to be mighty with God. But we've got to get to the place where we're tired of those ugly things and those traits that come to the surface once in a while. And we want God so much we're willing for him to do what it takes for us to have his touch upon our lives. And when we yield and we surrender to him by hungering for him, he not only delivers us from those traits, gives us victory over them, but he says you're mighty with God. His hand of power begins to rest on you. How many of you want the hand of God to rest on you in his mighty power? His brother comes. He has sent Four presents ahead. He sent one of the concubines and all her children and a present. He sent the other concubine and her children and a present. He sent Leah and her children and part of the camp and a present. And lastly, he sent Rachel because he wanted her protected at least. And so he sent her. And when he saw, he says, what means these four different groups of people in the camp and these presents? He said, these are presents for you, my Lord. Bible scholars have added it up. The presents that Jacob gave Esau and would not take no for it, an answer. When Esau said, no, I've got enough, he would not take no. Do you know why? Bible scholars feel it was because that was the sum total of the wealth he deceived Esau from getting.
Isn't it amazing when God does a work, he does a complete work. God blessed him enough that he made restitution and gave back to Esau. There was no more problems between them. They hugged each other. They kissed one another. They wept on each other's neck. And they were never another problem. And when Isaac died, both of them were standing there at the grave. When things get hard enough, we'll get to the place where we really get hungry for an encounter with the Lord. I am glad the Lord is good. And he will help us all the way. Would you close your eyes with me? You're here this morning. And you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior. You're here this morning and you have not received him as the Lord of your life. And you know you need Jesus. You know you need the Lord. And you say, Pastor, I want to receive Christ today. I want to surrender my life and my soul and my heart. I want him to forgive me of all my sin. I want him in his mercy to write my name down in the Lamb's book of life. Because I know God has a purpose for my life. So I want to give Jesus everything. I want Jesus to come in and be my Savior. If that's you this morning, you say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to receive Christ as my Savior today. I want him to wash all my sins away. If that is you, would you slip your hand up right now? I want to receive Christ as my Savior. Slip it up so I can see it. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I used to serve the Lord with all my heart. I used to, I used to love the Lord and serve him, but I'm away from Christ this morning, and I want to come back to Jesus today. Would you pray for me? If that is you, would you slip your hand up this morning? I want to come back to Jesus. I'd like everyone to stand with me, if you will. And I'd like everyone to come and stand or find a place to kneel around these altars or to find a place to sit at these front few pews. And for a few moments, let's just seek the Lord for a few moments. Come on and stand with me. And come on and find a place to seek the Lord this morning. And I'll be right down front here if you need prayer. If you need prayer, you want me to pray with you about something, I'll be glad to pray with you about something. Come on, let's find a place. Hallelujah. As many who will, come on and stand with us. Find a place to seek the Lord around these altars. Jesus, you're good. Jesus, you're good. You're so good. Hallelujah. Far above all gods, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted. Oh, slip your heart up to the Lord. All gods. I exalt thee, I exalt thee, Lord.